the National Archives podcast series, Sailors, Storms and Science. How Royal Navy logbooks help us understand climate change. Presented by Dennis Wheeler. As Caroline said, I'm going to talk about the use we make of logbooks in climate change, but being sharply aware that I don't think any of you here are hard-nosed physical or natural scientists, I'm going to put the emphasis on the archives rather than on the scientific conclusions, which, given climate gate and the cold winter, no one believes in global warming anyway these days, so we shall see. So this is the, these are the kind of ships whose logbooks we work with principally. I may say something at the end about the work we do with 20th century ships' logbooks, uh, and particularly those from the Second World War, because, you, as you may know, the Admiralty still deposit their logbooks here in the National Archives. But I've been working principally with what we might call pre-instrumental observations from before 1850, which takes us firmly back into the age of sail. And this, by the way, is an East Indiaman called the Hindustan uh, painted by Nicholas Pocock, a famous marine painter, back in 1803 to celebrate a, a particularly successful voyage on the part of the, uh, the captain, Captain Inglis, of this vessel. However, we might think we're very clever, we're very smug about what we do these days with computers and so on and so forth, and I think this quote is absolutely wonderful because it teaches us just a little bit of humility. And this is Francis Beaufort, who, as you may know, was uh, the inventor of the Beaufort Wind and Weather Scale, which is still used, in fact it's used at university by the World Meteorological Organisation. This is a part of a letter he wrote to his brother-in-law, Richard Edgeworth, who was a member of the famous Lunar Society of the early 19th century. He was quick to recognise how useful ships' logbooks could be, and this is what he said, there are at present 1,000 king's vessels employed. From each of them, there are often two to eight logbooks deposited every year in a Navy office. Those logbooks give the wind and weather every hour, spread over a great extent of ocean. What better data could a patient meteorological philosopher desire? It is not the subject, not more in a scientific than in a nautical point of view, deserving a laborious investigation. And it has indeed been laborious, but thoroughly enjoyable nonetheless. It's just taken us about 200 years to get around to doing anything with these logbooks. So uh, both have recognised it, but I think one of the challenges we face, and it goes back to what Caroline said, there is such an embarrassingly large number of these logbooks to deal with that unless you have a clearly focused set of objectives, you would never ever begin to embark on a, on a study of them. So what are they who made them? What are they like? Are there any others around? Well, this is a typical sort of cover page from the the sort of logbooks we work with principally. This is HMS Rattlesnake from 1797 or thereabouts. And logbooks were kept by ship's lieutenants, uh, ship's masters who were the navigation officers and the ship's captains. Admirals did not have to keep a logbook, but they did keep rather useful journals, although we don't make a great deal of, of use of those because they don't have quite the same degree of meteorological information. So logbooks contain an awful lot of material. If you're a medical uh, historian, if you're a social scientist, you're an economist, you'll find all sorts of material in there. It's remarkable that no one has looked at them for their meteorological or climatological data before. Uh, And here is uh, an indication of exactly what we're looking for. So there's a typical left-hand facing page of a Royal Navy logbook as you open it up. And this is uh, pretty much navigational, calendrical information. So for us as climatologists, we're collecting data. It's nice to know when and where the observations are made. 
And the great thing about these logbooks is they're very precise in terms of the dates. But beware, as you have to be with all archives, the nautical day began 12 hours ahead of the civil day. It began at midday and not at midnight. So these entries, for example, for the 7th of uh, November here, these are observations that began to be made on, at midday on the 6th of November by the civil day. So you have to be very careful about that. But we've got the dates very usefully we have the wind directions which are fundamental for us as climatologists they don't have instrumental data at this stage but wind directions are extremely useful variable for us we know the course the ship was sailing we know the distance she sailed in the day and that's useful for decoding some other elements of the logbook entries that we need in particular the wind force records we have latitude and we have longitude and we have bearings to the nearest point of landfall so we know where and we know when so when we construct a database of meteorological observations, we can pinpoint them by date and by time, by place and by space. And that's extremely useful indeed. On the other page, the facing page, you get the sort of general narrative account of the day. And captains and, and masters and lieutenants were obliged to enter anything here which was of significance in the management of the vessel. So some days there's not much uh, information to, to enter, and other days there's rather more food taken on, water supply used, and anything that as I say, germane to the management of the ship. The great thing as far as we're concerned as climatologists is that each uh, nautical day begins with an entry which tells us something about the wind and the weather. The facing page has wind direction, very useful, and you know, we might get two or three entries a day. Down here we have some indication of the strength of the wind. First part, this is from midday through the, the first eight hours, fresh gales and squally, <coughs> latter part, moderate weather they, they would often use little acronyms and, and little sort of forms of shorthand that you just have to become familiar with as you as you get to know the logbooks made sail as necessary this is i think a sunday read articles of war mustard ships company there's not much in there but that first line is very important for us so now we have date we have location we have wind strength we have wind direction and we know something about the state of weather it was squally and that in itself uh, if you know anything in meteorology, it can be quite interesting in interpreting the evidence that you have. So to summarise then, and this is, I would emphasise the pre-instrumental data sets that we have, we have wind force. Now the problem with wind force, having just mentioned Francis Beaufort, he proposed his scale in 1806. The Royal Navy adopted it only in 1836 and it became internationally used only in the 1880s. Before that, there was a wind force scale. It was a conventional scale, but it was never formally agreed by the Navy in the sense that the Beaufort scale had been. So we have to be careful how we use these narrative descriptions of wind force. Wind directions recorded on a 32-point compass. We have a fine scale of resolution for that. And we get also general descriptions of the weather. Fog, rain, snow, hail, thunder, icebergs, anything that... Uh, the, uh, the officers see that they think is important and worth writing down uh, goes into these logbooks. Now climatology is a discipline of hard-nosed numerical scientists these days. These are the guys who run the GCMs, the general circulation models. They're only interested in numbers. And we had a lot of, not hostility, but a lot of resistance to, to using these data for climatological research. But we pointed out that even today, the uh, much of the... Uh, weather data we get from the oceans isn't from satellites it, it's from voluntary observing ships these are the ships of the merchant navy usually the radio officer sometimes a captain is trained and equipped by the port officer at the port of departure 
and they make daily observations and they send them back to the nearest regional forecasting service who then use these data to provide the daily weather forecasts and they're recorded in almost exactly the same way as they were 200 years ago. Nelson would have been only too familiar with the instructions given to observers at the voluntary observing ships. And if the meteorological forecasting services who are rather different to the research area are happy to use these data, I see no reason why we shouldn't be either. And we've obviously carried out various tests on the data to, to check its uh, reliability and so on. But I won't go into that unless anybody wants to pursue that particular line in the debate. So what are the advantages that these logbooks uh, offer us? Well, first of all, as I pointed out, the observations are fixed in space and time. And it's very, very useful for us. Observations are what we, one of the things. As his, I'm a historical climatologist, and one of the things we get desperately anxious about is homogeneity of our data sources. If you're working with weather diaries or tithe records or church records, which we do, uh, you very often find it's very, very difficult to articulate between one writer and another because what one writer means by a hard winter, another writer might see in a quite different context. The great thing about these Royal Navy logbooks is that although there was no standard Beaufort vocabulary at the time, there was a standard vocabulary and we know that when Captain X in the Indian Ocean talks about a strong gale, Captain Y in the Pacific Ocean talking about a strong gale is describing exactly the same thing. From a climatological point of view, it's an extremely valuable advantage that we can exploit. And that homogeneity exists not only within time units but through time as well, from the earliest records of the late 17th century right up to the mid-19th century. It's blindingly obvious, but it's worth sometimes stating the blindingly obvious. The observations are made at sea. The oceans cover about 75% of the world's surface, and yet we're chronically deficient of it on historical data for the sea. We've got lots of people who've been busily collecting temperature, rainfall, and other records on land for many, many centuries. Galileo invented a thermometer in the early 17th century. We have even earlier descriptive records and so on and so forth. But the oceans remain unknown territory. And this is the only source we have for this kind of data uh, for the oceans. And also, it, it, it doesn't have what we call boundary layer effects. If you're recording wind direction over land, you get funneling effects, you get distortion of the wind field, and so on. You'll be familiar with it from everyday experience of, of hill walking, even walking around towns where you get these wind funnels and so on. Over the seas, we don't have that. What we see there, what we record, is the wind direction in an almost un unaltered way. That's very, very useful for us. Lastly, well not lastly, the data aren't proxy. A lot of the historical climate data that we use is proxy data. For example, it's treeming data, it's ice core data. They have within them uh, a biophysical record of past climates, but it needs to be calibrated very carefully, it needs to be decoded, we need to know what happens when treeming density changes, when treeming width changes. What does it mean in terms of rainfall? What does it mean in terms of temperature? We don't have that problem. What the captains and the lieutenants and the masters saw, they wrote down. So it's direct, it's not proxy. We don't, other than translating from various foreign languages or archaic English into modern-day English, we don't have a problem of moving from our source material into a very clear climatological record. And the source is one of embarrassing abundance. Some people did use them early on. Um, I just put, this is Edmund Halley uh, and, and George Hadley. Edmund Halley, of course, of, of Comet fame, and George Hadley, after whom the Hadley Centre, which is the research branch of the Meteorological Office, is named. And this is back in 1686. Even then, we find that the records of voyagers 
were being used by Halley in order to get some understanding of the trade wind circulation in the tropical latitudes. But it just wasn't followed up to any significant extent for all sorts of reasons, some of which we've yet to, to fully divine. But it's the number of logbooks which is at one and the same time an advantage and a problem for us. As far as I can estimate, these are the number of logbooks per decade over the years which we have here in the National Archives and, and elsewhere. And uh, altogether, I estimate there are about 120,000 logbooks for the pre-instrumental period, which is essentially uh, up to about 1850. Um, and that gives us the equivalent, should we ever be able to abstract it, of 22 million days of observational data. And we're clearly not going to be able to do that, so we have to use focused projects, and I'll talk about those in just a moment. So here are the logbooks. The individual officers would, make, uh, would, would keep the logbooks until about 1820, so a lieutenant, a master, a captain would keep them. Those logbooks are for the most part here in the National Archives. There are a significant number of lieutenants' logbooks we have in the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich. And the logbooks of the East India Company, about which I may say something in just a moment, are in the British Library. They're rather different in a number of respects, but uh, I may talk about those later. And as the years went by, the individual uh, officer's logbook was replaced by the general ship's logbook, and now the ones that the Royal Navy continue to use today and continue to be deposited <coughs> in the National Archives here. So we have a very large number of, of logbooks. Uh, what have we done with them? Well, the European Union have been very kind to us, and they gave us, uh, some years ago, a couple of million euros to engage in a research project. We set up this uh, uh, project, CLIWOC, Climatological Database for the World's Oceans. It's confined to 1750 to 1850 for a number of reasons, one being that that was all we could manage in terms of the time frame, and it gives us a 100-year extension from the existing instrumental record, which largely begins in 1850. That's the website uh, which you can visit. It's free. You don't have to register. And we've got our database there of 285,000 entries from around the world, which we abstracted from English, French, Dutch, and Spanish logbooks. So other nations do have logbooks. But it must be said, uh, in nothing like the abundance that we have. So, for example, Spain has about 800 logbooks. Uh, the Netherlands has about 8,000. France has about 20,000. And as I said earlier, we have about 120,000 for the pre-instrumental period. So really there's no competition in terms of numbers. This is the kind of coverage we, we have. The blue are, are the, the Dutch logbooks. The red are the uh, English Royal Navy logbooks. Uh, not all Royal Navy, as I mentioned just a moment, and the purple are the Spanish logbooks. We have a very good coverage for the North Atlantic, very good coverage for the South Atlantic, not bad for the Indian Ocean, and really disturbingly little for the Pacific. Not that we haven't abstracted Pacific logbooks, but uh, hardly anybody sailed there. It's not that it was inhospitable. We didn't go anywhere. If you wanted to trade with the Far East or with your uh, colonies in Africa or in South America, the route was fairly obvious. We do have some interesting logbooks. Cook, uh, for example... Malaspina in, from the Spanish records and so on, and Vancouver. But these are little more than little snapshots, vignettes of climate in over short periods of time. And to be of use to us, we need long periods of climate data and climate observations. And of course, as we move from one logbook to another, we are able to stitch together long periods of record. And in fact, we've just finished putting together a daily record of wind force and direction 
for the daily, I would emphasize, for the North Atlantic from 1685 to the present day. And it's the longest, sorry, the second longest set of climatological data that we have after the famous Central England Temperature Series of Gordon Manley, which begins in 1659. And we're hoping to get that published in Nature in the next uh, few months, but it has yet to be, uh, be fully reviewed. But you do have to be careful. You can't take things at face value. And I mentioned earlier the problem vocabulary. We don't have proxy data. What we see is real. Um, but I'll just mention gales because they're rather an interesting case in how we have, need to be cautious in the way in which we use these data. Now, the word gale today carries with it the implication of some kind of hazardous weather event, gale warnings, which are sent out regularly by the Met Office, and rightly so, because they cover the top end of the Beaufort scale forces, 7, 8, 9, 10 is storm, 11 is hurricane, and so on. But if we go back to the 17th century, and indeed well into the 18th century, well, frankly, everything was a gale. You know, you go from inclinable calms up to a full storm, and everything between that was a gale. So... Today we have near gales, gales and strong gales, but if you go back to the 17th century, my goodness me, what have we got? We've got fine gales, small gales, light gales, fresh gales, easy gales, gentle gales, brave gales, indifferent gales, soft gales, and pleasant gales. <laughs> so you have to be very careful how you interpret it, because if you immediately think of gale, then you're going to be completely wrong. Uh, and this is where something that I mentioned earlier is so very useful for us. We need to study the activity of the ship. And one of the things we can use is the distance a vessel sailed in a day, because there is an, a close, albeit non-linear relationship, between the speed of a vessel through the water and the strength of the wind which propels it. So we're able to use that to unravel the strength of some of these uh, forces and express them in modern-day Beaufort terms. And uh, they're all we produce what we grandly call the Clarock Multilingual Maritime Dictionary, and if you are indeed uh, brave enough, just go to our website and you can download it as a PDF file uh, free of charge. So we had to do this in four languages, by the way, which is an interesting exercise, but there you are. But it's a nice example of the evolution of language and how we have to be careful in how we use it. So here's, a, here's our diction, if you want to. And all we did was to take these terms and, and uh, express them. BF is Beaufort scale, so faint breeze is Beaufort scale 2, faint gale is Beaufort scale 3. Fine breezes, both at scale five, and so on. And there's our, our dictionary. It was published by KNMI, who were the Royal Dutch Meteorological Institute. They were one of our partners in the research project. And uh, but as I said, there's no charge for that. You can download it uh, at any time at your leisure. The other, th the other thing you'll be careful about is where the ship was, because longitude, of course, was the great intellectual challenge of the 18th century. And it wasn't until dear old John Harrison invented his marine chronometer back in the late, uh, in the 1780s and 1790s that we really had an idea of determining longitude with any degree of reliability. The other problem was that Greenwich did not become the universal meridian until 1888, and before that, your zero meridian could be anywhere, normally your port of departure. So if you were to take the zero meridian, the longitude readings as they stand in logbooks, you can come up with some very strange locations indeed. And this is HMS Surprise, and it is HMS Surprise. This is the, uh, the master and commander ship. We used the logbook of HMS Surprise, and uh, the uh, Hollywood Film Company kindly reconstructed the vessel for us. So this is one of her voyages, and she's indeed a ship of the desert, as you see. So <laughs> and that's because Tenerife was a zero meridian for that particular leg of the voyage. If you correct and bring it back, to, uh, as it should be, we assumed it was, if you take it as Greenwich, that's where she is. If 
correct paternity group, that's where she is. So you have to be very careful with all of these data. You just can't go into an archive and say, wonderful, all this material, let's pull it out and work with it. You just can't do it. Yes, I'm aware that time is marching on. This is a, a very particular uh, project we've been working on, and we have, Caroline said, we moved a little bit out of just climatology. We've become aware, as we've worked with these logbooks, they're national treasures. I mean, this is, this is Nelson, and it's Drake, and it's Frobisher, and it's, it's all these other people. And we found that lots of historians and people had nothing to do with our research also got very, very interested and excited about the project. So this is an example of how we focus in on a particular set of the 120,000 logbooks and make the best use of them. And this is a project which was uh, planned to digitise and image the particular collection here in the National Archives of the logbooks of the Voyages of Discovery. So it's Cook and it's uh, Fitzroy and Darwin and, and people like that. And uh, it was a JISC-funded project, and we have now abstracted, I think, some 50,000 images of these logbooks, all high-quality images, all available on our website. You can go there and, and you can read the documents without having to come to, to keep lovely place how it is, without having to travel all the way down, as I do for Newcastle, is a flog. And it's great to sit at home and be able to look at these things. At the moment, we're improving the website. We've got a, a company commission to, to improve that. But uh, that's the URL. It's operational, and if you want to go there and see what we've done with it. And this is, a, this is just making information available to everybody. We're still in the process of abstracting the numerical data and the weather data from these logbooks. But one of our priorities was to just make them available to the general public because they are fascinating. And the response we've had through the media has been quite overwhelming. You know, around the world, you know, we've done interviews with people in Canada, the United States, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, Germany, and lots and lots here in the UK as well. And uh, it, it's really taken off in a big way. And some television companies even thinking of doing a three-part television series on it, for goodness sake. So, you know, we've really struck a chord. So this is the kind of thing, this is a particularly interesting one for me. This is not because it's Darwin, it's because it's Fitzroy, who was the captain of the Beagle and founder of what was to become the Met Office, uh, and a very interesting man indeed, and uh, he established the very first weather forecasting system here in the United Kingdom. But this is his logbook, and it's, as you can see, good quality images. You can go page by page through, if you want to, all of Darwin's circumnavigation of the globe, as seen not by through the eyes of Darwin, but through the eyes of uh, uh, Captain Robert Fitzroy, who was a deeply religious man and never, ever forgave himself for having that viper at his breast, as he called it. Uh, and he was also a manic depressive, and he committed suicide in his bathroom one morning uh, in a state of deep, deep depression, with an absolutely fascinating character. Yes, briefly... We can also use up-to-date uh, logbooks, actually, 20th century logbooks. And these are stuffed full of very, very useful meteorological data that nobody has used. Now, in the Second World War, people had thing, better things to do than make weather observations, but Royal Navy officers continued to make them, and we've got one or two records, you know, you know shell fire, Japanese bombers attacking a plane with temperature 52 degrees, you know. They, they, no, seriously, they did. Um, and we need to know more about the climate of the 1940s because there are some peculiarities about it, and it's the logbooks which are providing this information. And we have had a DEFRA-funded project together with the Hadley Centre, and we pulled out 1.6 million new observations for the world data set. And it's clarified our understanding of some other peculiar climatic anomalies during the 1940s, so it's already... Uh, uh, 
paid off as we reap benefits from that. So I'm not suggesting for one moment that we stop at 1850. The instrumental data are there as well and are extremely useful. This is our electronic notice board. We work closely with NOAA, who is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States. And this is not a funded project. We call it the Reclaim Project. It's just our electronic notice board. And if you want to know what's going on in the world of logbooks and logbook data recovery, which is, you know the American government is now very interested in this and have put quite a bit of money into it as well, I should say. Uh, this is where we post our notices, we put our directories, our dictionaries, our hyperlinks, and so on and so forth. So do go along there, and that will keep you up to date. It's not a research project as such, but it's an arena uh, where people can get together and find out what's going on. It's an expanding field, and one which is now enjoying quite a lot of, as I say, very, very useful uh, publicity. So, I mean, if, if you can't, if you just Google Reclaim Project, it'll, it'll come up for you. Right, thank you very much, everyone. This event was recorded live as part of the Using Archival Sources to Inform Contemporary Policy Debates Conference on the 16th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>